Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. From Aristotle to Einstein to the late Stephen Hawking, many of the world's greatest physicists have searched for a unifying theory of everything. Whilst the possibility of its discovery seems likely for some, for others it's an impossible task. And what's more, if philosophical physicalism is true, then a physical theory of everything would mean that there existed a philosophical theory of everything. And here at the Institute of Art and Ideas, we'd all be out of a job. To debate the existence of a theory of everything, we have on our panel eminent physicist John Ellis, philosopher Hugh Price, and the author of A Field Guide to Reality, Joanna Cavenna. Robert Roland Smith hosts. The title of the debate is The End of the Theory of Everything. That certain points in history, some, some associated, for example, with Stephen Hawking and others, there has been an idea that we would ultimately find the most comprehensive theory, if not description of everything, that there is out there. But that that possibility has sort of come and go over the years and today we're trying to get a bit more of a, a handle on that with three very uh, distinguished panelists. Can I pass to you, Hugh, first? I think the idea of a theory of everything is, is basically confused because there are simply too many different kinds of things and we can't reduce some things to other things. To give a, a simple example, let's look at these things that we're all sitting on here that you're all sitting on there. Chairs. We can imagine a theory of chairs, thinking about what's essential for something to be a chair. Basically, a chair is something for humans to sit on. Now, that's a fairly weak kind of constraint. Obviously, chairs can be made of many different kinds of physical materials. A, a chair is defined by its functions. And, and because of that, there's no simple way of reducing a theory of chairs down to a, uh, a theory of, of, of any kind of physical constituent. So. The idea that there could be one theory which told us the truth about all of these kind of things is, in my view, simply mistaken. Okay, so thank you. Very clear that one theory can't account for everything that there is. Theories tend to be, or can be, weak in any case. Thank you very much. John. Yeah, well, I'm a, a theoretical physicist, and uh, what I try to uh, figure out is fundamental laws that govern the behavior of the universe. So I'm sorry to say, Hugh, I entirely agree with everything that you said, but you know, that's not my shtick, so to speak. So there are chairs on this planet, but you know, there aren't any chairs on the moon, but the same fundamental laws apply you know, to, to, to physics and chemistry and so on. And so that's what I try to figure out. So for me, a theory of everything should encompass all those fundamental laws. Now, I, I should apologize. I think the reason why I'm here is because I'm often given the responsibility 
for inventing the term theory of everything, which is actually not quite true. I actually stole it from a journalist. But actually, the article that I wrote on the subject said theory of everything or of nothing. Part of what I had in mind when I said nothing was precisely what you said, that you can't explain absolutely everything with it. So you know, if you look back in history, physicists from time to time have claimed that we're almost there. And history is littered with distinguished physicists, 19th century, early 20th century, who said there was just one or two small details to figure out. Uh, and that was crap, and it's still crap. Now, I, I would actually distinguish those people from Stephen Hawking. So he wrote an article saying, is the theory of everything in sight? And so I think he had you know, the idea that we're, we're not quite there, but it's something that we could imagine up on the top of a hill somewhere. Uh, and I think that's very much my point of view, that it's an, an aspiration that I think we as physicists should have to try to stick together all the fundamental laws, but we're not there yet. Can I just uh, I'll follow up on that then? briefly, and maybe we'll talk about this in the, in the debate, does the aspiration for a theory of everything assume that there could be a theory of everything? Not necessarily. I mean, I think most people do uh, think that there is one. Uh, and uh, of course, string theory is often cited as uh, you know, the most followed example of, of such a belief. But, but maybe it doesn't exist. But that doesn't affect the fact that I think we should try to find it. because. In the universe today, we see all sorts of disparate phenomena, but physicists can link many of these together. String theory is a tool that might enable us to link even more things together, uh, and I think that would be uh, interesting and potentially useful. Okay, thank you. So there couldn't really be a theory of everything. There might possibly be a theory of everything, and the aspiration towards it will galvanize our efforts. Joanna, you're about to reveal the theory of everything itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, which is nothing is real. Um, so as the stray novelist on the panel, I couldn't possibly denigrate the enterprise in story making. I think story making is incredibly important. We all do it. It's an absolutely fundamental enterprise. As I understand it, the story that we're talking about with physics is that there's a really specific thing going on. John will, of course, correct me. There are two mutually incompatible theories in physics, um, and the attempt is to reconcile them. There's general relativity and quantum mechanics. And so that's a sort of endeavor that's intrinsic to physics. It's really fascinating. I wish them luck. But I think there's a really important taxonomical distinction, and John's already cited it, and Hugh has cited it, which is that this can't answer anterior questions about why does the world exist? Why is there the everything? Who are the people? Who are the selves that are contemplating the everything? These are enormously uncertain philosophical anterior questions that no one has yet managed to answer. So I think it's when the things get confused. And the only danger of the confusion really is that there's a notion then which John does not advance, but some people do, which is that if you haven't got the right canon of references and thought, and you're not referring to a long line of people from Descartes through Newton to Maxwell to Einstein, and you don't understand Bell's theorem, then you can't have a debate, you can't use terms to talk about all these imponderable anterior ideas, like what are we doing in the world and who are we? So I think it's the, the kind of anomalous claims that are sometimes made. So I would wish the physicists enormous luck with reconciling their two mutually incompatible theories. But I'd also say I don't really want a single theory of reality. I'd like to make a suggestion that we have instead a sort of praxis. And I thought of the idea of hexis, actually, this Aristotelian idea, 
where you have a kind of poetry, science, art, experience, training, is all created and digested into a sort of organic, natural experience in the world, rather than having a single driven theory. I'm going to end by quoting Richard Feynman, who's a physicist, as we know. And he says, no one ever figures out what life is about, and it doesn't matter. Explore the world, which is a kind of way of this praxis I just mentioned. Thanks. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. We're going to try and go down into the next level of uh, detail, because after all, we're, <laughs> we're quite in a, uh, the clouds of abstraction at the moment. A couple of you have mentioned reality. So the kind of specific question is, so is reality beyond the reach of theory? I think, I think I'll come to you, John, first about that. The, how we're, and I, implicit in that is how we're understanding the word reality anyway. At meetings like this with philosophers, I discover that you know, there's many different interpretations of the word theory or reality or, or, or beauty. And you know, clearly, when, when I'm talking about theory, I'm talking about something distinct from often what a philosopher is, is talking about. And the same thing goes for, uh, for reality. And to be clear, your definition of a theory is then... Well, I've got one right here. So it's written on a T-shirt. So does this describe reality? Well, yes. The top line describes the fundamental interactions that govern the behavior of stuff in the universe. Uh, the second line, that describes the actual stuff itself, like uh, electrons, like the stuff that's going on inside nuclei and so on and so forth. And uh, well, may, many of you heard about the Higgs boson. Well, that's what's described on, on the two bottom lines. So you know, that's the theory, okay? And, and it describes reality, right? I mean, people do experiments and they find a, a Higgs boson, for example. Physical reality. Yeah, physical, physical reality. So, of course, th there's a lot more to do, right? And uh, you specifically mentioned quantum mechanics versus general relativity. So I think quantum mechanics was a very interesting theory that, that somehow we stumbled upon almost by accident as physicists, but we were forced to do it by reality. And it forced us into a new way of thinking about the way that reality uh, behaves. But indeed, you know, now we are faced with this tremendous challenge. In fact, we've been faced with it for over 100 years, how we combine quantum mechanics with general relativity. And we've got various ideas about how to do that. But the ultimate theory of reality should include both those theories because both of them you know, are you know, some of the patches that we use to describe what's really happening in the universe. Perhaps I could also, if I may, just pick up one other point that Joanna made. So we physicists don't do with the, the why. That's, somebody else does why. We do what, when, where, how, but not why. Right. Okay, thank you for that. I'm going to come to you then, Hugh, on this. Um, do you share some of John's thoughts there about what theory is, what it can do, whether reality can be expressed theoretically? Um, well, one of the things I'd like to do is to pick up on a, a comment that you made there, Rob. You, you interrupted John at one point to say physical reality. I mean, as you know, one of the very annoying things that we philosophers do is to not let people take their words at, at face value, but always, always look for distinctions and to try to clarify things. You know, the, the old joke goes, how many philosophers does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it depends on what you mean by change. <laughs> or indeed, like <laughs> Yeah, indeed. And so, so I think you're quite right to pick up on the ambiguity and the notion of reality, which we're in danger of tripping over here. And John is using it to, to mean something like physical reality. 
I think Joanna and I are using it in a more general sense. I certainly wanted to use it in a sense so that we can say that chairs are real and we can have a theory of them. But once we've drawn that distinction, then uh, we, we, we can certainly ask the question that John is asking as to whether we need just one theory of physical reality without it in any way disagreeing that we need a theory of chairs. But if I could say just one more thing, I think thinking about this concept of reality, of there being a truth out there in all these different domains is a fascinating philosophical question in itself and in my view is one which is best addressed in terms of, I think Joanna used the term myth, so the qu you, you, you can uh, ask the question, why is it useful for creatures like us to have this idea that there's a, there's, there's a, a truth out there that we're all aiming for and, and my view on that is that the answer to that question is, well it gives us an incentive to to try and resolve disagreements. And that's useful in all of these cases, and not just in the case of physics. Okay, I mean, there's a bit of slippage there between reality and truth. I'm just gonna try and keep us on, I mean, truth we can come to, but I'm gonna keep us on reality for a moment. Joanna, where, where are you with this? That, that reality is, is, well, is never going to be captured. Yes, I mean, the, the, so the, the assumptions of the physicalist view, which are absolutely necessary if you are dealing with physical elements, are that you would, by knowing all of them, everything about them, you might reach a full understanding of the world. And that is an assumption. And it also doesn't include the person who's perceiving the physical elements. So, of course, there's the Chalmers point that if you're going to have a theory of everything, you need a unified theory of the selves that are creating the theory of everything as well. So that's one aspect I wanted to take up. The other thing was I love John's T-shirts. Um, if I were to understand it, he would need to translate it, as it were, into language. And so we would have one remove, and we'd be in the realm of metaphor. I mean, we have a Wittgenstein scholar or a Wittgenstein professor here. You know, we'd be into a different system from the mathematical system. And that's an important distinction. And once you're into metaphor, we have currently a huge metaphor, the Big Bang, which is our theory of everything in terms of creation. That was originally conceived of in a different metaphorical way by Georges Lemaitre in the 20s as a cosmic egg cracking open. And so there are these huge suggestive slippages about these statements about reality that I think we just have to keep considering. But is the assumption still that there is a reality out there that lies beyond the means by which we mediate it, whether those means are theories or language or poetry or metaphor and so on? Is there, well actually the question to all of you, I mean is there an assumption that there is the means with which we describe reality closer to us and beyond it there is a reality which we may or may not be able to capture in its essence but nevertheless is of a separate order somehow than our means of mediating, is that? Well, I think, you'd, I mean, there's the, the great sort of get out is you'd need to be omniscient to know whether your theory of anything is true. You'd need to stand beyond all theory. But yes, I agree. I mean, Borges says no language theory is ever, ever enough to deal with reality. Stevenson makes the point, you know, 10 minutes of consciousness is so much more interesting and weird than the whole of Shakespeare's vocabulary. So I think there's that problem too, that all of these attempts to capture what's going on are doomed to a certain amount of failure. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers 
on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yeah, the notion of failure is an interesting one, because the next question we're going to get in is whether, and you touched on this a bit earlier, uh, John, in your opening comments, whether science has essentially been doomed in its hunt for theory. I mean, you were saying earlier that, st that the, kind of, the attempt is valid, even if we never get to the top of the hill. So that's fine. We can stick with the attempt because it, it, it empowers scientists to continue to work together and to attach different bits of theory to one another. So presumably that's how you answer this question, that the, the attempt may be doomed in some sense, but it doesn't stop our efforts at making incremental progress. Yeah, well, I think I'm in line with, uh, with what you're saying. I said I didn't invent the term theory of everything, but actually I think I did invent the term grand unified theory. And that was in my younger and somewhat more hubristic days and before I encountered philosophers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an example of how you know, often terms are invented and then they take on meanings of themselves which the inventor doesn't have any control over. Uh, I think Big Bang is a very interesting example. So uh, I think the precise term Big Bang was actually invented uh, by Fred Hoyle and it was intended to be derisive. This was such a crap theory. But of course nowadays we regard it as being uh, you know, the establishment uh, point of view. I think I'd also like to pick on something else. So the, the word understanding came up. So uh, then again, the philosophers are going to unpick the term understanding. Uh, and I'm quite prepared to be unaggressive about that and describe what we do in physics as a description rather than an understanding. I mean, we know how things happen. At some deep level, do we really understand it? If a philosopher tells me that I don't understand it, that's okay with me. On the other hand, I think that you know, the theories that we develop now, I'm not terribly comfortable with the word story in this connection because you know, if you say a story, then you, you know, it somehow carries with it the idea that there are other stories. Yeah, and, and I certainly agree with what you were saying, that you know, we just cannot capture, certainly not on a t-shirt, you know, the complexity of phenomena in the universe or in uh, even 10 minutes of human consciousness. But can I, could I ask, because we're here partly because of Stephen Hawking and Mlodinov's book, the grand design, which, in which he says, let's end this debate between the realists and the anti-realists by having model-dependent realism. And so he actually says, let's have theories you know, that seem to work. And even if you know, there's more than one possibility for each description, that's fine. And so is he then countering this idea that there is the possibility of a single story? Would you say that in this instance, that's the only story? So what I would say is that no, this theory on the T-shirt it, is fine as far as it goes and it enables us to calculate things to predict things it enables us to make mobile phones etc 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 but you know it, it has a limited domain of validity and for example the t-shirt does not include a theory of gravity right and so there's another t-shirt which has the theory of gravity on it right and uh, you know whether that's going to forever be the case that we will never be able to squeeze everything onto one t-shirt quite possibly okay 
I want to bring you in, you, and come back to the notion of being doomed in not being able to get hold of reality, because it struck me from what you said earlier, and possibly a bit from what Joanna said too, that actually there's a, there's a pleasure in not being able to describe reality fully, and that might actually be a constraint were that uh, end ever achievable. I, I think I think it's 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 more than a pleasure. It's a it's a kind of necessity, and and, and this is coming back to the the suggestion I. I made before. I know that you you wanted to distinguish between truth and reality, but I think that, that distinction isn't a very important one here. The important thing is that we, we have this deep idea that there's something out there beyond ourselves which we're striving for, and that's true in all these cases, whether we're talking about this particular area of a description of physical reality or a theory of anything else, be it chairs or airplanes or, or mobile phones or whatever. This sense that there's a standard beyond ourselves that we're all aiming for is, in my view, central to the to, to the activity of, of conversing with one another, of, of 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 making claims. Whenever you're making a claim, you're you're claiming to meet some standard. Now, it's crucial that um, somebody else can challenge that. So, if somebody else can say, "No, you haven't met the standard." But what what that requires is the idea that there's a standard out there that we're both trying to meet. And that standard is really the idea of the reality. Now, seen in those ways, we can see what a huge difference having this idea makes to us. It makes it possible for us to converse and have arguments and, and, and to combine the expertise of many members of a community. The, the idea of a reality beyond ourselves is, is something that we can't throw away because it plays this fundamental central role in, in, in all our language games, to, to use uh, a Wittgensteinian term. Right. So even if it doesn't exist, that reality serves, it has a kind of functional purpose for us in allowing for communication, coming together, discussion. Exactly. So, so, so if so reality didn't exist, we'd need to invent it, you yeah. could put it like that. Let's move on then. We'll come on to our, our final theme of the debate. Do we need different theories in different situations, or is it too soon to give up on grand theories? And I think I'll start start back with you, Hugh, if I may, because I s sort of, from the way the question's phrased, I, I would guess you'd sort of agree with that. We just need different theories in different situations, have slightly more plural, slightly more pragmatic yes. view of the world. Yeah, as I, I've said, uh, I do think that there's a, a fairly trivial sense in which we do need different theories for different purposes. Again, the, the example of theories of chairs, if what we're doing is uh, designing objects that we can sit on. Um, that's, not a, that's not really a very interesting sense. The, the more interesting question, I think, is for this panel is whether once we get down to the level of um, something like fundamental physics, whether it can be true there that we need different theories for different purposes, or whether, on the contrary, as, as, as John believes, and uh, he may well be right about this, that there, there's a pressure towards unification there, which is a very important one. I think the, the pressure towards unification between quantum mechanics and the theory of gravitation, in my view, is a very important one. And it may be that this pressure towards unification that, that we feel, it's something which, which kind of emerges from the background when physics or, or any other discipline for that matter finds itself in this peculiar situation of having two important things that it can't see how to reconcile. Okay, and Joanna, I'm interested. You're obviously a writer of fiction, among other things. And I was wondering whether, in a certain sense, you could think 
when we're talking about different theories of the world, whether a novel or each novel is a different theory of the world in some way. And so, you know, every fiction has some assumptions about how the world works or should work and describes characters Absolutely. within it. That's exactly it. So every writer is inducting the reader into their version of reality. And effectively, why we like certain writers is because their version perhaps is more evocative of our own or seems to tally with how we perceive the world. So we talk about Dickensian writing. We mean the way that Dickens perceives reality, essentially. That's absolutely right. And I think actually that's a really interesting element within this, that if you include all representations of the world, all theories of the world, all stories of the world in a kind of idea of a totality, a totality of reality, then you know the world or reality includes Dickens or includes Borgesian bonkers, wonderful conceptual madness, and includes all of that. And so that is reality. Even the irrational, the fantastical, is all part of the reality, yes. Yeah. How about you, John? Am I wrong to sense in you a kind of a resistance to the idea that there are just lots of different theories for different things? Well, it's clearly true, right? Uh, but, but, but my job is to try to make it a little bit less true. You know, I, I hate to keep on coming back to my T-shirt, but, but the various different <laughs> bits of my T-shirt you know, originally emerged as different theories describing different aspects of the fundamental physical reality. And then uh, physicists realized uh, you know, how to stick them together and put them into one theory, which so far still fits on, on a T-shirt. We want to have a theory which is, which is more unified. Uh, and I think this is part of the, uh, the human urge to somehow understand better how things work, perhaps with the idea that if we understand better how things work, then we might be able to exploit them uh, s somewhat better. I I'm committed to the idea that, at least in my sense, there is an objective uh, reality out there. Of course, I hope that at least in my lifetime, we don't reach the theory of everything because then I'd be unemployed. But, 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 but I do believe that you know, if we bumped into aliens from Andromeda, you know, if they wear T-shirts, their T-shirts would have the same, the same equations on them. Have people seen the movie Arrival? Yeah, it's a fascinating movie. Total crap. <laughs> okay, because it somehow predicated on the idea that time works differently for us from what it does for aliens. Bullshit. Time is the same everywhere. So for me, that there is a, an objective reality. And uh, we're trying to understand as much as, as we can. But provisionally, we have different theories which describe different patches. Say I gave you a t-shirt, a different t-shirt, with a Shakespeare quote on it. And just randomly, the quote is, all the world's a stage. Okay? You could argue that that is a theory of everything. That's a theory of the world and how the world is, that we're all somehow actors, that we are performing our parts in the world, and that that if not exactly a grand unified theory of everything, covers a an awful lot of human behavior. What would be wrong, in your view, if anything, with that kind of T-shirt? I, I think I've carefully avoided describing anything as being wrong. Uh, and uh, the last thing I would do was describe Shakespeare as being wrong. And uh, no, certainly, you know, he captures in that phrase a very important aspect of, of reality, you know, the, the way that we interact with each other and so on and so forth. And that's very interesting and useful. Uh, it, it doesn't help you make mobile phones. Right. But it does, it might help us understand human behavior. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> Which is less useful in your view? No, I think it's in, in, incredibly useful. But uh, 
you know, if we meet these aliens from, uh, from Andromeda, then uh, the way that they interact would presumably be different, and the way that we would interact with them would also be different, and it'd be very interesting, and this is, of course, the main theme of Arrival, to figure out how the hell you do interact with them. Even if an Andromedan wouldn't recognize all the world's a stage as a, as a theory of everything, Presumably, I don't know, what do you think, Joanna? Would well, he that... might represent, if he were mortal, he might represent, you know, the, the feeling of being mortal and finite. He might understand, or she might understand the experience. Okay, uh, the sort of assumption in this debate is that we're talking about scientific theories of everything and kind of working out from there. But let's just spend a few minutes on non-scientific theories of everything, which we've touched on a bit. So take another theory of everything, which would be um, everything must pass. Okay? You know, at one level, that's just a platitude. What kind of validity would that have as a statement in your, in your world? Well, I, I think one of, it do, one of the things it does is to bring up a point which has been sort of lurking around the edges in the discussion we had here, especially the discussion about the, the viewpoint of aliens and so on, which is that many of our theories have built into them a kind of human perspective. And this is, of course, it's true of chairs. I mean, the, the reason we're interested in the theory of chairs is, is because we have this particular biological need to support ourselves physically. But it's true even more, obviously, for something like a theory of color, which is a theory of color as it looks to a normally sighted human. Now, once we realize that, we can ask ourselves, we, we can start looking out for those ways in, in which the way in which we talk about various things. We've got those dependencies for, for, of our own kind of situation or nature or perspective built into them. And some of the most interesting cases, in my view, are the cases uh, involving time. Because um, as, as physicists know, the, 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 the world is effectively time symmetric at a fundamental level. Could you just then, explain the word for the... Well, um, it, 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 it means, uh, and there are some qual qualifications which John would be able to give us, but it, what it means roughly is that if you have a, a video of a process that's allowed by physics and you play the video backwards, what you see in the reverse video is also a process allowed by physics. Now, that's true at the fundamental level. It's, it's not, not true for, for many familiar things. I mean, th think of a, a video of a, a glass breaking on the floor play that backwards, you see a, a glass assembling itself from shards of broken glass into a, a whole glass. That doesn't happen in, in, in the world. But at the microscopic level, um, essentially, everything is time symmetric. But lots of ways in which we describe the world uh, are, are time asymmetric. Everything must, must pass. We're, we're sort of looking forwards there, not, uh, not looking backwards. So where does that time asymmetry come from? One possible answer is that it's coming from us, that we, we are oriented in one direction in time. So we receive information from the past via memory and other things, but we know very little about the future and we're interested in acting, roughly speaking, to ensure that things go well for us in the future. So we have this very asymmetric standpoint on time. Um, and I think there are very interesting questions about how deeply that perspective is embedded not not just into the ways we talk about things in every li everyday life, but in quite deeply in science too. When we talk about things like cause and effect, yes, according to our fundamental equations, all things do pass. Yeah, very good. And on that uplifting note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring this temporarily bound 
event to a close. Will you join me in thanking our wonderful panellists, John Ellis and Joanna Kavana. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, what do you think? Does the theory of everything exist? And will it be discovered in our lifetime? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 